0: Thanks for joining us for episode 50 of Practically Ranching. I'm your host, Matt Perry. This episode was a blast to record. Uh, I've never met Dr. Phil. I actually hadn't even talked with him on the phone until we recorded this episode, but a listener connected me with him and he suggested that I get him on the podcast to talk about an issue that had been bugging this listener after he and his wife went out for their anniversary dinner a month or so ago. And, you know, I was a little uncertain whether a topic like this needed to go on a ranching podcast, but I thought, you know what, what the heck? If it's important to a loyal listener, it's important to our industry. Dr. Phil Bass, that is, is a meat scientist at the University of Idaho, much like other meatheads I've known, he stays very, very current with nearly everything that goes on within our industry and consumers that are related to it, and etc. And he isn't afraid to address all of them when he needs to. As Dr. Phil says, he knows a little about a lot of things. So we cover the gamut. Uh, We hit human nutrition, beef, cattle genetics, livestock selection, value-based marketing, politics, economics, animal ID, exports, public lands, beef promotional efforts, restaurant weight staff training, and then we touch on the meat science topics of carcass weight, extra ribs, higher USDA grading standards, and finally portion size of steaks today, which is what the listener obviously called to connect me with Dr. Phil about. (laughs) Full disclosure, I ran through a whole host of titles for this episode before I finally settled on the one that you just clicked. Believe it or not, some of them were (laughs) were even in poorer taste than the one that we chose. But when you've got a guest named Dr. Phil... For a podcast on Valentine's Day, how can you resist? True to his name, Dr. Phil is intelligent, he's thoughtful, he's passionate, and he is the kind of guy that makes me proud to be an agriculturalist and a beef producer. And I'm pretty certain that you will agree. So thanks for joining us. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Dr. Phil Bass on Practically Ranching. Well, that'll that'll get folks to
1: tune in anyway, won't it? Exactly, exactly. <laughs> then
0: they'll go, "Man, he sounds a lot different on the podcast." Yeah, yeah,
1: so, sounds much taller, right? <laughs> <laughs> right, right, yeah.
0: Yeah, you may not quite have the uh, crazy stories that Dr. Phil would in terms of Valentine's Day, but yeah. I guess I first have to ask you if you're taking a Valentine out for dinner, obviously you're going to order a steak. Sure. What's your go-to cut for a nice romantic valentines dinner.
1: Well, for me, um I and honestly my wife as well, we are ribeye fans. We yeah. love marbling and we love fat. And so, you know, um good good beef marbling, it there's something to that um that it uh, um it's I think it's instinctual for us. I think that goes back to some level of evolution where there's so much energy in it. But it's also very palatable, and it's really good. Uh, It's a really good type of fat, and uh, it's usually plentiful in a ribeye. So we like ribeyes.
0: Yeah, I do too. From a food science standpoint, and from a consumer trend standpoint, you know, I I grew up in the '80s, and it was the war on fats, and we couldn't make them lean enough. And obviously, up till 1996, we saw what that did to consumer demand. And since then, we've we've been kind of climbing back, um, what has changed in that arena uh, in terms of science and also acceptance? I mean, we're even having some nutritionists. Um, We've had one or two on this podcast that talk about, from a human nutrition standpoint, how fat got thrown under the bus, and it was a terrible thing. And as we replaced it with carbohydrates and things like that, um, we've actually made people less healthy. Mm-hmm. where are we on that spectrum and are, are are we finally seeing some adoption of the fact that fat isn't all bad?
1: Yeah. You know, um, to, to first answer your question, I think a major change occurred in beef demand when we started refocusing on marbling and on yeah. fat and taste, you sure. know? Um, yeah, you're right. Uh, growing up in the eighties and the nineties, uh, I remember showing beef cattle in the nineties and they all kind of looked like racehorses. <laughs> uh, they were tall and lean, you know? Yeah. And, yeah. uh, uh we have greatly changed that to the point where you know it's it's funny you look at at old photos of of uh beef from the 50s and 60s and uh, we're not there i mean those were those were no neck pigs really what we had back then <laughs> but um but we, i think we have we have really started to optimize the beef animal and marbling has driven that and people are realizing that if we're going to spend the money on something that is uh, not the cheapest in the meat case or not the cheapest on the menu, it needs to be good and it needs to be satisfying and we need to have good value. And and um you know I uh my previous employer, the certified Angus beef brand, I uh I'm I'm still very much branded but uh but but I also really applaud all the other brands that are out there that have seen the success and it's not marketing guys. It is not um they're good at marketing but it's the specifications that come along with it. And they were the ones that really helped to change the tide. Um, you can look at at beef demand and and when those brand specifications came out, and it was about marbling, and that's what they really hang their hat on. And so now we have, oh, gosh, uh, dozens, if not still in the hundreds of beef brands that are listed uh, by usDA and uh, overwhelmingly they 're focusing on marbling and when we started doing that, and the packers realized that it's easier to sell that uh, <laughs> they they started to uh, uh Provide premiums, and and that's where we need to be focusing. And And then the premiums went back to the feed yards. The feed yards realized that if we bought the right types of cattle who uh, were predisposed to marbling, then we're going to have an easier chance of gaining those premiums. And so I believe that has helped to drive the, uh, the, the change in beef demand. Um, and we're giving people what they want, not just saying, here's what we got. And we have to be very careful about that because there's a lot of producers out there saying, well, I have cattle and you should buy them. Well, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of car manufacturers out there that say, I got a car, you should buy it. And, and gosh, darn it. We're not going to buy something that we don't want. Um, your second question on nutrition and gosh, yeah, I have been, I've been really beating that drum pretty heavily lately on the meat side of things. And, and the value of meat in the diet, first off, um, Dr. Shailene McNeil at, uh, National Cattlemen's Beef Association. Sure. I mean, that was probably one of the, f- the the most fun podcasts I've I've been a part of. I I, I have a podcast myself, and, and oh, so one of the one of the, one of the most fun interviews that I've had recently was just visiting with her about the the uh, the great uh, uses of meat in the diet, and especially beef. Um, and then uh, more recently, um, visiting with uh Dr. Eric Berg at North Dakota, North Dakota State University and um uh, you know he focused more on on uh using the pig as a model uh for human nutrition um just because they have such a similar digestive tract but he fed them hamburgers. Oh, wow. And, uh, and gosh, started it, it. You know, it, it made them lean. It made them, it made them, uh, it, it helped them with, uh, with muscle growth. Um, now, uh, to just feed them straight up hamburgers, that's not necessarily a good thing. It's not a good thing for us either. We need to have a good balanced diet. But meat in the diet is critical. Um, the war on fat was, it was the wrong thing um we had to change that and now having fat in the diet i think folks are starting to realize it's satiating it right. fills you up you're not hungry shortly after if you eat if you eat just a um i don't know a candy bar or something you're going to be you're going to get that shot of glucose you're going to get that shot of sugar and it's great for the brain and it makes you makes you active for a short period of time but it declines very rapidly, and it messes with your insulin levels, and so that makes you sleepy. Right. Okay? So uh, if you have protein, animal protein in the diet, especially uh, something like beef, uh, where you're also getting some of that dietary fat, you're going to feel full longer. You're not going to want to snack, and that dietary fat is great for muscle energy. I mean, that's, that's the energy that our muscles want to use right. first. Okay, Um, so, yeah, I mean, we still need glucose in the diet. Um, It's good for our brain. Our brain are is a uh, is a glucose user, uh, a very heavy glucose user. And and it's probably the reason why, you know, if you're really feeling low or you're trying to drive and you're having a hard time staying awake, that Snickers bar is going to do that immediately but you also need to be snacking on some pork rinds or a beef stick or something at the same time to to extend that 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 energy level. So, anyway, I'm going on and on about this, but I think it's I think it's a pretty cool subject. No, it is.
0: And and when a meat scientist talks about the two things that you've just talked about for the last 6 minutes, one being beef demand and consumer demand and basic trickle-down economics from consumer all the way back and then flips the switch and gets to talking about human nutrition and why it is that what we were told through the late 70s, 80s, 90s, yeah. uh, in terms of, you know, no fat, no real, what I would say, bodybuilding protein. Um, yeah, I look, fast forward to today, look what's happened. And that's why you're on here. And this is why I go after guests who like yourself, don't just know one thing pretty well, but see that it's kind of this holistic thing. We have to know a little bit about it, about oh. all of it, so. Oh, we're, you
1: know, it's all tangled up. That's why I, I love being a meat, a meathead. Cause I have to know a little bit about a lot of things, yep. you know, and, and I, and I feel like I do know an awful lot about, about, you know, the just meat fabrication, beef especially, but I have to know a little bit about a lot of things because the, that entire, everything that you do to that animal, all the way from the point of genetic selection is going to impact that meat finally. And that's the final product, and I, we have to continue to remind our producers. I was just in uh, uh, over in, in in Salmon, Idaho, talking to a group of ranchers over there, and uh, I always like to quiz the audience and say, "What is it that you raise?" And and it's funny to see some of the old timers say, "Wow, well, weeding calves or 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 fat steers." Or... No, you are raising food, yeah. and if people don't, people don't want to buy it, you're you you're no longer you're no longer ranching. You just have a petting zoo. I mean, we, we, have, to have, we have to have something that people want and they want to buy it and, they, and we want to buy it again. And that's where if we're focusing on high quality genetics and good management and picking the right animals and feeding them well um, and marketing them appropriately,
0: we're going to have a sustainable economic system and it's going to be able to be passed on. So I didn't invite you on here to talk about this, but I have to ask when you do have that rancher, because I hear that more today, you know, we went through this whole refocus, not refocus, focus on the consumer movement about the time we were seeing branded beef kind of in its infant stages. And we said, we have to focus on the consumer. We have to look at beef quality assurance and making sure that we're handling these cattle while they're alive and being developed in a way that makes the best eating experience. And, you know, we moved the vaccination location to the neck. We did all these things as an industry that were just basic consumer demands that we weren't meeting. And then we went to the branded beef movement and we went to more marbling and more tenderness, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Now I'm hearing more and more producers that are going, by gosh, I'm doing all this stuff and it's just making money for the feed yard that bought them from me, or it's just making money for that packer that's selling it. What do you say to that argument? And and I see their point, especially if they are not figuring out how do I tie information to this calf whenever he or she is sold so that I get to share at least a portion of those premiums. But how do you address that guy that's sitting in Salmon, Idaho saying, no, I sell 575 pound steers. Period. After they leave my place, I could give a darn less. What happens? Yeah.
1: Well, yeah. Um, it, it it It's just like any other product that's out there. You have to keep the end in mind and that final consumer that's going to be purchasing it. And yeah, if all you're doing is selling weaned calves and you don't have and you don't really care about what happens next, um, then uh, I worry for your business model. That is that is a really old fashioned way of going about things. Um, we have to we have to keep uh connected to that entirety of the of the value chain. So so if you're selling you need to be you need to know who you're selling those animals to um and talk about all the great things that you're doing for those animals. So hopefully, hopefully you're preloading them with good vaccination protocols. That you you're you're out there um and making sure that they're getting the colostrum they need early on in the chain. Maybe you're not going to retain ownership. I will tell you some of the most and I tell I tell the, the guys over in Salmon Idaho, I tell the guys in Manhattan, Kansas, I tell everybody the folks that are really uh focusing on on um uh progressive cattle are Considering retained ownership, maintaining some type of interest in those animals, all the way to the point of the packer, that's where you're going to get that premium, but it's also a risk. But it's a risk that you're banking on, you've done the rings, and some of those premiums. Now, we can look at it as the trickle-down economy effect, and, and I think that that's still very viable, as long as you're marketing the things that you are doing to those animals. So again, good vaccination protocols. Um uh anti-parasitics, you know, you're worming those animals at the right time. You're 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 doing you're doing all the right management things. You need to be telling the people who are buying those f- from you. And I think people are willing to pay for that. It's it's more than just, you know, no horns and a black hide. It's right. it's I think you can you need to be selling uh you've you've gone through beef quality assurance training. You're 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 vaccinating in the right place. Um you're uh, if you are creep feeding, you need to be telling these people that because those animals are now uh, we're learning more and more about from the meat science side that fed calves um, are marbling really well later on in life. They're, you're you're telling you're teaching the cells, the muscle cells uh, what to do early on in life so that when when uh, they are eventually on the high concentrate feed ration, um, they know what to do with that. the The body knows what to do with that extra. And so. All of those aspects needs to be sold, you know, and and I know a lot of guys that have decided to try to market direct to consumers, and and that way they they think they're going to gain the value, and it works for some. Um, it's the ones that are really good at marketing and and uh, and have that already pull through demand. People are asking for it, but for the folks that maybe have a thousand head, um, it's really hard to direct market all of those <laughs> animals, and so we still need to use the the normal market chain. And in that case, you need to be selling what you have. You need to be talking about all the great things you are doing to those animals. And if you're not promoting that, then then you're missing out on value opportunity. So
0: I, get, I gave you a whole bunch. I know. No, that's <laughs> that's exactly what, I mean, that's, in my opinion, that's exactly right. And And it's so disheartening sometimes to see just how short-sighted sometimes that we are in the farming and ranching industry and that not only are we just producing x commodity Mm -hmm. but i could care less what happens afterwards and i'm gonna you know oppose right now i know out in ncba or a week or two ago they were discussing the animal disease traceability program and and all of a sudden that gets tied to id and that gets tied to big government and big brother watching and they're gonna just you know tell me that i poisoned someone on down the way and, and i'm against that um Golly, it's hard for me to believe in 2024 that we don't have a nationally accepted or adopted identification program that we can, by the way, use in a lot of these different programs so that if I am selling calves 10 at a time, Mm -hmm. I can show why those calves are better than the next guy's 10 that he sold, why they were treated right, why they had the right genetics or whatever the case may be, instead of being afraid of someone knowing that I produce those 10 calves. That's, That's just... That's, again, not why I had you on yeah. here, but it is something that really, really challenges me as I go forth and looking at long-term at, at mm-hmm. how it is we market and merchandise and, and produce
1: Yeah, beef no, the, the reality is on, on, that, on that line, and I'm sure you have some other directions you'd rather we be going, but I want to talk just, just briefly on the value maybe of putting that ear tag in those animals. Um, guys, that, that opens up avenues of marketing for us, and um, some folks don't realize... I'm not going to say some folks, I would say most folks probably don't realize the value of our export markets. Um, They add value to that animal that we cannot gain in the United States. We're not going to eat all the livers, hearts, and, and kidneys and tongues that we can generate here in the U.S., but we have countries out there that pay dearly for it and are really excited to get it. But... So much of those, so many of those countries do have full animal identification programs. And I'm just waiting for the point where they're going to say, you have to have one too, if you want to sell to us. Yeah. And, and, and some, some of them, them already do. And some yeah, of them some do. Of them yep. Yep. Source verified. Yep. Exactly. So, so yeah. it's a, it's a marketing Avenue guys. Um, it's a way of gaining a little bit more value out of your animals by putting a silly ear tag in. So.
0: Yep. Yep. <laughs> well, so let's go back to one of the first questions I asked you, you're going to Valentine's dinner with the wife you're both ordering ribeyes we have sold a month or two ago a 1600 pound live weight steer that has a thousand right ish pound carcass Mm -hmm. yep yep average wise that ribeye is going to be how many square inches
1: oh well yeah go back to your preliminary yield grade yeah yeah, i'm going to go back to my
0: uh it's going to be 16 plus
1: it it could be yes it could be yeah um it doesn't have to be, though, and this is, this is the fun of the meat science side. So, okay, okay, let's All right. go. Hold on, hold on. I hope you brought your seatbelt because this is, this <laughs> is kind of cool. Okay, back to the branded beef programs, okay? Um, and, and we could say certified Angus beef. We could say Sterling Silver, Chairman's Reserve, Swift 1855. The list goes on and on and on. Um, many of them actually have a ribeye area specification. Which means you can't make it over sixteen square inches and get the premium of those branded beef programs. Okay, right. so here's what I have observed. Yes, the old yield preliminary yield grade calculation would would say it's probably over a sixteen square inch Um All of it depends on fat thickness as well, and sure. and and other and other factors. But um, yes, it's probably going to be over sixteen square inches. What I'm observing is it's not. What's happening, what I'm seeing is yeah, cattle are definitely fatter, and that's going to add to that extra weight. They're getting longer. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. Which is which is kind of cool. Which makes a lot of sense because if you think back to, you know, uh, you and I are probably about a similar vintage and, and when we were, when we were learning how to judge livestock, you know, the the big one, the long one wins. Okay. Right, so right. We've selected for long animals. We've done this in pigs already where we've actually added ribs to the pig because we've selected for longer animals. And so now that we're getting bigger bellies and longer loins, and, and there we are. So I'm noticing some of the really high uh, hotshot hot genetics that are out there um, where there's this mysterious 14th rib showing up. Yeah. Cattle, cattle are supposed to have 13 according to my books and the things that I teach in class. But this mysterious 14th rib is, is popping up occasionally. And, and I, I, get, I still get the opportunity to do an awful lot of beef cutting, and it's fun to see that. Sometimes it's just kind of what we call a floater rib. It's just an extra little thing that's hanging out there. But I've seen just straight up, this is an extra full-on rib. And what, what we're doing is we're just telling nature we want them longer because we're going to get more of those middle meats. And so nature says, fine. Uh, but we have to put some structure in there, and that's what, right. that's what nature's doing is throwing an extra, uh, an, an extra vertebrae in there, which adds an extra rib. So all of that to say, <clears throat> yes, we may be getting really, really big animals, which is awesome because that's more meat. Leads to little complications on the fabrication side, but, you know, we're meatheads. We'll figure that out. They're getting longer. They are. And, yes, we're getting some. Really big rib eyes, but I wouldn't say that it's an overweight. I don't. I wouldn't say it's a, it's a big problem. I'd have to go back and look at the recent uh, beef quality audit to see, but I think we're still in a pretty similar average of about 13 thirteen thirteen and a half square inches.
0: Yeah, yeah. And back on the extra rib conversation, mm-hmm. uh, this has been a while ago, and so I had to reach back. But episode twenty two of this podcast, which was October twenty of 22, I had Dinah Clark from CB oh, on, yeah. <laughs> and she said the same thing. And and uh, in fact, when I saw her doing a cutting demo at the CB conference, when I met her, she mentioned it up from the stage, uh, that more and more they were seeing this, not a floater rib, but an actual attached rib, which, uh, yeah, I mean, we always laughed about the fact, wouldn't it be great if we could make a longer longissimus dorsi wouldn't it be great if we could make those middle meats that drive so much value especially Mm -hmm. on these high quality type of carcasses into said carcass wouldn't it be great well guess what maybe we are and And i think everybody who's listening to this knows why a big ribeye is bad especially in food service but even sending home but if if i wanted a let's say a 14 ounce, 16 ounce, you you make the math work, but what I would call a pretty good sized steak out of a 16 inch ribeye. Yeah. How thick is it going to be? It's going to start
1: getting almost less than an inch at 16 square inches. You might be, you might be just less than an inch and it depends on the fat and everything else that's adjacent to it. But, um, yeah, it just keeps getting thinner and thinner. And so, um, it's kind of counter to what, what production is being told is like make them big and more muscle weighs more. And, and that's great, but it is harder to sell those, uh, really, really big ribeyes.
0: So I don't think as an industry that in any time soon, I mean, we've added carcass weight every year for ever and ever, and ever, it seems like,
1: yeah, it's, it's an average linear average of about five pounds of carcass weight each year that we're
0: adding. So if, if that is linear and has continued and we're seeing reduced cow numbers over the next three to five years for sure. And, and, um, who knows what, after that, we're not making these things any smaller. No. How do we from a, again, consumer demand is driving the bus. If that consumer wants to buy a 14 ounce or a 16 ounce or Gosh, I mean, the guy who told me I needed to get in contact with you, um, Bryce, if you're listening out there, Bryce Borer <laughs> said, you need to have this guy on your podcast because we need to talk about portion size. And yeah. so that's why you're here. Okay. Uh, you can you can send him the hate mail.
1: No, that's all right. But
0: <laughs> I, um, And I'm glad that he called me. Yeah. But his deal was, I just went out for my anniversary with my wife and you know what a 10 12 ounce steak is plenty Mm -hmm. anymore and if i want a 10 ounce steak that thing's going to be three quarter inch or less thick yeah why don't we start cutting these ribeyes in half why don't we start figuring out how to portion size these so i can get nobody wants to talk about a thin juicy steak they want a thick thick juicy steak yeah Yeah. um how do we do it and not compromise the efficiencies of production and scale and and you know Everything that we've done in this industry to put up with 1,000 and 1100 eleven hundred pound carcasses.
1: Yeah, yeah. Oh gosh, Oh, I have so much to tell you right now. What hanging out with the chef groups um, over the years? They're in the, in the fine dining restaurants where you're going to see the steaks and everything. You know they sure. they're making a three dimensional art project, and what I like to call mm-hmm. uh, what I like to say is it's altitude is attitude. Um, you if you can get some thickness to that steak, it's going to look better. It's going to be easier to prepare. You're going to get the right degree of doneness you're asking for. A really thin steak, there's only two degrees of doneness. There's raw and well done, and that's it. You know, there's not <laughs> much in between. So, um, a thicker steak is going to look better, and it's going to be prepared right, and and this and that. Okay, so, so that's that's correct. I remember when I was in graduate school, and maybe this this is probably going to really start dating me. Um, but uh, when I was at a National Cabinets Beef Association meeting, I believe it was uh, it was one of the
0: winter meetings,
1: and we and this this topic has been around for some time. We're making a baby, oh
0: yeah right talking about it. We were talking about, it, yeah. we were talking about it when when we were getting up to eight hundred and fifty and nine hundred pound Yeah, yeah, which which okay for my research dissertation in graduate
1: school. If I I was looking for exceptionally large carcasses so if i found an 850 pound carcass i'm like this is the one you know (laughs) we're gonna make all kinds of we're gonna make some changes here well heck guys the average right now is over 900 pounds average oh so like 850 pounds we're not even we're not even scratching the surface anymore Look, yep. it, and, and you know what? That's a testament to the efficiency, the great things that are happening out there. The, the producers are doing the right thing. We're raising the right animal. Okay, great.
0: So Some, but, might, some might be arguing with that yeah. in terms of how big is too big, but that's hey, another podcast for another time.
1: I agree. You're right. Because, well, and that, that conversation has come up in the past, and, and I've asked that question, and it's going to come down to how big of a cow are we willing to maintain. How how far in the mud are we willing to let her sink before we're like, you know what? She's just a bit too big. She eats too much. And uh, anyway, so I I would also
0: say that that same system, again, editorial way sidebar, but the same system that demanded marbling and high quality cattle that has gained us back consumers and driven value into our beef industry, that same system of value-based marketing is going to have to send signals that says, okay, enough's enough. We're not just going to mm-hmm. not allow 16-inch ribeyes into CAB. We're not going to allow 1,100-pound carcasses in the door or 1,700-pound yeah. steers. Um and until that happens, until we don't yeah. just have this little discount for heavies, but an absolute <laughs> we're gonna pay you more if you send us fourteen inch ribeyes and down yeah. or whatever, uh, we won't see that change. In my opinion, we won't see yeah. that change. But anyways, yeah proceed.
1: <laughs> no, that yeah, that's a great point. It's a great point. So so okay, so back to my my, uh, my time in grad- graduate school, and I just remember this so distinctly because the individual is, is so distinct, but uh, I don't know if folks out there remember Dallas Horton. Oh, yeah. Cattle feeder in Colorado. Sure. Okay. All right. And, and everybody who knew Dallas, uh, uh, you know, um, tiny little hat, but big personality. Sure. Uh, so anyway, <laughs> so, well, good so, uh, but uh, I remember him standing up in the audience and just saying, the solution is easy. Cut it in half.
0: I was and then there. he sat
1: back down. Okay, okay. So, us meat scientists, we all got together, and we got our knives out. And we talked a lot and drank a lot of coffee and <laughs> had some meetings. And finally, decided, you know what? What if we cut that ribeye in half? <laughs> <laughs> Reality is, is we are doing that. Now, the ribeye—if we're talking about the ribeye steak. OK, um, coming from the rib section of the carcass, it's not as easy to do that. And right, and right now, the, mar- the market signal says just keep selling ribeyes as fast as you can because we can't hardly keep up. And in fact, you know, at, there are times and there have been recent times where the ribeye, the, the subprimal, um, has, has encroached upon and even exceeded the value of the tenderloin. Wow. Which, like, yeah, yeah. The war on Whoa. fat oh, is so, over. <laughs> OK. Okay so yeah so we don't have a problem selling ribeyes but what we do need to more focus on just to continue to maintain the the uh, uh the consumer demand is the rest of that longissimus muscle the longissimus dorsi muscle okay that goes into the strip loin right. and that's where the value for cutting those things in half is really going to make a difference because that's that's fewer muscles that we're dealing with it's really one single muscle at that point and for those who are out there and aren't familiar strip loin is the big side of a t-bone okay and when we make it boneless now we have a new york strip steak we can cut those guys but they're going to still be affected by the size of that ribeye and so if we're talking about some of these these cattle that are 17 18 square inch ribeyes those are actually very well set up for cutting the strip loin in half um now the ribeye subprimal it gets a little bit mu- messier and and um ideally those are those are better off if we start separating muscles there's uh for those who are ribeye fans there's the little muscle on right on the edge of the ribeye that's the, it's called the spinalis dorsi it's the ribeye cap um it's probably the best piece of meat in the entire carcass it's the it's it's super flavorful super tender um that needs to be removed and then we're down to a single muscle that we can start cutting in half again. And and that's for presentation and consistency purposes. If we pull that cap muscle off, there are folks out there that are, you know, they'll pay over $40 a pound for it yeah. uh, going into a restaurant. I mean, it's, um, it's highly desirable. I don't know if we've reached the, the max on what people are willing to pay for that, to be honest. And it's interesting how that particular type of fabrication, so if we peel that cap off of the ribeye subprimal, um, and merchandise that it it kind of almost turns the ribeye muscle itself, the longissimus dorsi, kind of almost turns that into a byproduct. Wow. Um, yeah, it's it's crazy to think about that, but it's a highly valuable byproduct. Sure, and sure. and our challenge right now is just educating the consumers. So <clears throat> as far as the strip loin is concerned, we can do that. We can cut it in half; the value's still there. If we start peeling apart that ribeye, the the folks that do the steak cutting so the distributors out there that are cutting steaks for restaurants and that it's harder for them to truly make money on that they're better off just cutting a thinner ribeye and people are still buying it and and it's kind of like the argument where you know beef's really expensive in the supermarket and i think that's going to that's going to cause a decline in in consumption (laughs) i don't think that's happened i think people just complain more and they still buy it, yeah. I think the decline in consumption is just the availability okay. that we have right now in the in the extremely small herd that we're about to have and uh, and everything, but I could be wrong. An economist could probably tell me different, but um i'll I'll stand my ground and, and say, you know people still want meat, they're still buying beef, they're just complaining more. well, um, if... rice, you're complaining more,
0: yeah, and for years <laughs> every time, and I think again, this is a function of. Now serving a high quality product. But for years, every time the cattle cycle got a little short on supply and beef prices went up, and I'm talking prior to 96, oh, 2000, somewhere in yeah. there. I yeah. mean, it wasn't a gradual, well, they're buying a little less beef. They immediately traded down to pork or poultry. Um, yeah. Yeah. The last cattle cycle or two, it hadn't happened. And the economists, as you referenced, will start talking about inelasticity of demand and that we've separated ourselves from the rest of the protein complex. And if somebody's going to buy steak, they're going to buy steak. But we as ranchers, I think, still kind of almost want to apologize for beef prices. When in actuality, the only way that we can continue to do what we do is to make that steak so good that almost regardless of what it costs, those folks who want to buy a steak are gonna buy yeah. a steak. And they spend a lot of money on other things that are an experience, hunting, fishing, yeah. vacation, skiing, whatever the boat, whatever the case may be, why not let them spend it on entertainment, which is what they're yes. doing when they go out and buy yes. a steak.
1: Yes. You know, <laughs> I used to joke, you know, we have to take a a play out of the playbook of our friendly local drug dealer. You know, they they got something <laughs> that people will will We'll pay for, uh, and we'll pay anything for, you know, and and uh, and I think that's where we're starting to hit a bit of a stride. You're right. I think the economists are right where we're we have we have uh, disconnected from the other protein. It's it's not a trade over protein. It is beef is is something that is highly desirable. It tastes different especially North American beef. We we have it right. we have hit a stride for sure. There's no tenderness problem anymore, you know. I mean, that was a big problem that we were trying to address in the 90s oh, and early 2000s and and now I mean, uh, we do a lot of tenderness research here at, at University of Idaho and um almost always it's just super tender meat and so tenderness isn't a problem necessarily it's the uh, it was the marbling that we needed to figure out because that's where the flavor and juiciness comes in as well as tenderness and now that's uh, in abundance to the point where usda is having to create higher standards of marbling to to address the levels of marbling that we're starting to see in in some of our north american cattle not just the wagyu types like, this, is our, this wow. is our British breeds that are starting to hit levels of marbling that um, are, are new <laughs> to the industry, wow. which is kind of cool. Yeah. So I don't know where that that's going to land us. Um, I, I still strongly believe that, you know, a high-choice, low-prime steak is probably going to be your best eating experience out there. You get to a point of, of marbling that uh, it takes a very refined palate a uh, very specialized palate to truly appreciate. And, and, you know, that's when we get into our Waigus and the Kobe level of marbling, um, where I, I like to equate that to, you know, uh me or a sommelier, so, uh, so a, a wine connoisseur. You know, I you <laughs> sure. give me a $20 bottle of wine, and I'll be pretty happy with that. I said, oh, man, that's good yeah. wine. You give me a $200 bottle of wine, I say, oh, yeah, that you know, that's pretty good. The sommelier is gonna say, "Oh, this is a twenty dollars bottle of wine. <laughs> what are you drinking that for?" You know, uh, versus the two hundred. It's like, oh yeah, so this gotta have all these nuances and this and that, and and that's kind of where you know you start to get in those really high levels of marbling that that I think it takes a very specialized palate. So I'm I'm getting off topic, but you know the point being that I think the I think the value is there. I think people appreciate the value and. uh you're right. You know, stop apologizing. I tell I tell our our little small processors uh, that I work with regularly too, is uh, they're apologizing for raising their prices, and you can't you can't do that because you won't be in business. You have right. you have to you have if you're creating something that is worth the value, then charge that value.
0: Yeah, yeah, and and like I said, I mean, it's not just sustenance. If they're yes. going out and buying a steak, it's not strictly nutrition. Is there an immense amount of nutrition? Yeah. yeah, it's the most dense nutritional bite for bite of of anything they can probably yeah. eat when you throw in the zinc, iron, protein, you know, and the good fats and everything yeah. else. But that's not what's driving them to the meat case to give 15 bucks a pound for it. It is an experience. It is to go home and have their family go, "Wow." Or their coworkers go, wow, or what it, whoever it is that they're trying to impress, even if it's just themselves, that's what they're buying it for. And we need to recognize that and see that they're not only spending a couple hundred bucks on steak, they're spending a couple thousand on a new set of hunting gear yeah. at Cabela's. Yeah. And they shrug that off <laughs> like it's no big deal. Why wouldn't we let them do it with steak? Yeah, yep, that's right, yeah, yeah. So back to the ribeye size and yep. shape. Mm-hmm. How does this work going forth? You said we need to work with our consumers and educate them and figure out their preferences. If we and when we figure out how to effectively cut that spinalis cap off, after we figure out some of these growing pains with a knife in the meat room, how do we get the consumer to be okay with having a ribeye that is no longer shaped like a ribbon yeah. or a strip or whatever the case may be yeah that is the challenge right now and ultimately it it's going
1: to come down to you, you know the 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 big changes in food happens at the restaurant um it's not going to happen at the retail sector um it's it has to happen at the restaurant level and so it's getting into some of those influencers in certain areas usually you know the the, the high dollar restaurant in a large metropolitan area that's gonna that's willing to try something different and provide for the uh, the dining customer, exactly what they're looking for, a great experience, but maybe something new. And it is new. It's a new idea on kind of the same old thing. And so, you know, you mentioned Bryce. Bryce said, you know, 10 ounces of, of steak is great. And we can absolutely do that. And, you know, even eight ounces of steak is, is, is usually just fine for most folks. I know that, that there are those who go to a steakhouse and they want ribeye, but they buy the fillet because it's only eight ounces. And I, and I've seen that personally with my own family, you know, so if we can adjust how we cut those, but then also at the same time, educate the consumer about that, then that's where we're going to start to be able to really capitalize on that. Those really, really big animals. Um, challenge always comes down to who's making that, who's making that final sale at the restaurant. It's, it's the waitstaff and is and gosh, darn it. You know, guys, this is. These are the people that are getting paid the least, but are going to, yeah. they are the ones that are driving the ship. And we have to be conscious of that. And now I'm speaking to all the chefs that are listening, all, all two of them probably, but all the chefs that are <laughs> listening out there. We have to, We've got a few. you got to, okay, good, a few. good. Um, you know, we have to, uh, we have to continue to educate the wait staff because they are the sales team of the restaurant. And if they can explain the difference, um, and, and talk about how this is going to be a great eating experience and it's, it's exactly what you're looking for and it's the right size and shape. You know, that's no different than, than somebody selling a, a pickup truck. You come in and say, I want a truck. Well, we got a big truck. We got a little truck. We got trucks with long bed, short bed, four wheel drive, no wheel drive, whatever. There's no no wheel drive. But, but <laughs> you know, I mean, that one's it's, that's the one that's pretty darn <laughs> cheap. Yeah. <laughs> we got a few around here, in fact. But anyway, uh, <laughs> so, you know, it's. um it it's a uh, it, it's it's designing the experience for the customer um the the wine industry figured this out a long time ago oh, yeah. you know it's it's how, what are you feeling like today? what are you gonna have with your meal is it are you having steak are you having chicken fish? what is it and now we're going to calibrate the wine for what you want well my question comes back to uh, what I think we need to be asking is, what are you feeling like tonight? Are you feeling big and bold and robust? Are you feeling something a little lighter? You want some lighter fare? We have some of that. Cool thing about beef is we can hit all of those categories. Beef yeah, beef isn't exactly. just big and robust. Ribeyes are big and robust. And even more so, if you want, if you want punchy in the face big and robust, you get a dry-aged ribeye. And now you're, now you're selling the really big red that's on, on the shelf, you know, and, and to go along with that. But it's designing the experience for them. And, and unfortunately, too many folks who are, you know, they, wait staff, if you look at the old, old steakhouses and say, like, New York City, there's still few folks there that made a career out of it. And unfortunately, I don't think that's a case anymore. There are folks that are just trying to make ends meet between jobs. And if we can help them, show them how selling these these different items, um, they start to get more buy-in into the restaurant. They stick around a little bit longer. They become your your exceptional wait staff, and now they're selling this different steak um, that that might be a lower cost now to the restaurant because maybe it came from a bigger animal, but it's in a different manner. And 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 if we can if we can upsell in that category, I like to talk to the wait staff uh occasionally and 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 you know if you sell the chicken, that's fine, but you're gonna get a bigger tip if you sell the steak yeah. yeah that's just plain and simple it's a it's a percentage that that people pay unless you're you're tight and you're not willing to do that, but mostly people Most, will pay yes. fifteen twenty percent for a tip, and so if you sell that okay. steak, you're better off. And and if we can sell them something that is, is what they're looking for specifically. And we're we're doing that. We're slowly doing that in the beef industry. Pork and chicken figured that out a long time ago. But yeah. it was more chunks in pork and
0: chicken. Speaking of chunks, I think back to when I was a kid and all the beef that we had came out of the freezer. And it was wrapped in white butcher paper and it was <laughs> the broken-legged bull or the open heifer or whatever the case may be. And so a sirloin, to me, until I was... 23 years old and working in, or 22 years old, living on my own. A sirloin to me was this brontosaurus steak. Yeah. 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 That was cut maybe three quarters of an inch thick. And just like you said, it was either going to be raw or it was going to be burnt to a crisp and it was always burnt to a crisp off of our grill. And then we'd cut that into portions for everybody to eat a piece of this sirloin. I went to an Outback steakhouse in 1997 in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, somehow I'd saved up enough that I could afford that at that time I think it was a 7.99 sirloin yeah. dinner with all the trimmings. And they bring out this sirloin that and I'd never heard your term that today the chefs are making a three-dimensional art project. But this Outback Steakhouse had in my opinion a three-dimensional yeah. art project. It was a sirloin cut like I'd never seen a yep. sirloin. And the thing was phenomenal. Yep. It was red and juicy. and the, But the reason it was, was because it was two inches yep. thick by two inches wide by three inches long. It was a cube yeah. of steak and I loved it. Yeah. And if we can do that with a sirloin, why can't we do that with a yeah. ribeye? And it's interesting to me that I I just think of it as strictly a consumer issue and or strictly a packer or further processor that's a steak cutter, I think those are the two choke points. And you gave a really good perspective that it may very well be that Wait staff at the restaurant—that is the one that we need to lean yeah. on. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. We need we need to be helping them, you know. And I'm, I'm glad you brought up the Outback example because I meant to I meant to mention that. So yeah, Outback Steakhouse really popularized what we call now the baseball top sirloin, and so hmm. yeah, it's it's exactly what you're proposing to do with a ribeye. We took this big old muscle group that comes from the rump area, and now we just cut it into half and even thirds. Right. And and it's fantastic because, and part of that, and this this is where I mean, meat science. We might come up come up with an idea, but sometimes we're really bad at selling it. But if you look at the top sirloin, like you're saying, so the old fashioned brontosaurus top sirloin steak actually has four muscles in it, and every one of those is going to taste different. And one of those muscles, the biggest one, has two what we call heads to it. Different muscle is going to have a different eating experience. Okay, what Outback did was they said. No, I want that one. I want that muscle. Just the one. People like consistency and if we can which means there's two parts of the single muscle that are still going to taste different. So every do that, then then we're actually going to have a better eating experience in the end. If you give them just a single muscle to work with, now it's not one bite was good and the other one was not. Now it's like all the bites are similar and they're all good because you don't have much to compare to. We can do that with the ribeye. Now the ribeye is very special because it has three main muscles, and they're all really good, uh, and and that's why we're we're probably not going to be taking apart ribeyes in vast quantities right now. But the but the strip loin is a great example of how we can start taking that idea from the sirloin and apply it to another muscle. So so the strip loin really is where the value is right now because it's easy to do. You don't lose a lot of yield when you start taking apart ribeye, um, things just start getting complicated at the at the the state cutter level. So yeah, it's not the packing house. Ha- inexpensive exactly, and restaurants. As much as you know, if you can get a, if you can get in front of a restaurateur, and and really have that conversation, it's not percentage of food cost that is driving the value of your restaurant. It's how many dollars you're taking home in the end and, and 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 a lot of a lot of chefs and restaurateurs are trained to well this is the this is what my steak costs and that has to be 30 percent of the overall value the the cost on the menu we have to go away from that we have to say you know maybe the steak costs this and it's going to be actually 50 percent of the cost on the menu but we're actually going to sell more of it and so we have to start looking at, at just menu pricing even a little bit different. Um, grocery stores are the same way. They kind of have a set percentage that, that they need to charge for the item. And we need, to, we need to take a step back and say, well, we could probably sell more of this if we just lower the calculation percentage um, or, or actually raised it. So we would say well, the overall sale cost is actually going to be 50% of of what it is, but we're going to sell more of it. So we're going to get more stakes through the door at a little bit lower cost, but we're going to sell a lot more of them. So there's more dollars coming home in the end.
0: And I think that's what we have to be after. I mean, it's this <laughs> kind of holistic systems approach yeah. to the the beef business all the yeah. way through, just like we've talked about all the different steps And even down to focusing on an area that most of us aren't very comfortable or understanding of, and that is the restaurant and the retail side of things and how it is that they look at the beef business from their perspective. And it, yeah, it, it takes a little wider view, I think, to, to get some of these things done. So final question, this will be the easiest one. If you are beef king for the day. Priorities, let's say if you could pick three things in order, what from now for the next thirty years drives the most consumer dollars back into or into our business? Told you it was easy.
1: Yeah, well, uh is this is this a political podcast? Is that, is you this is everything podcast how uh, how crazy we're gonna get here because you know the crazier the better listen so i've been i've been thinking about this and in fact something really hit me the other day so i get a chance to talk to a lot of beef producers and packers and processors and restaurants and everything it was when i was going to hang out with the sheep guys um. That that's oh, okay. Something... We can't talk about no, that. No. 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 It's all right. It's okay. It's okay. Um. No, and, and something. And something. Uh, really hit me that I think is very evident right now in the beef world is there's uh you know we we don't sell a lot of sheep meat in this country. And we. Why is that? Uh, well, okay. <laughs> there's a hist- are his- going. There's a historical uh background to that, but. I believe we could probably sell a lot more sheep meat in this country if we had more of it to sell based on some of what I've just recent, more recently started to observe in that industry. But we're not raising more sheep. I think right now that more dollars could be taken home to our producers if we could raise more cattle because the value is there. I believe we can do it because of the innovations that we have we have been able to gain and farming practices and and um, just overall agricultural technologies that are available to us, we can make more beef. If I were king for the day, I, I it would have to come back down to we need to re educate the the consuming public of where their food comes from. And that has to go and start making changes to policy. I think we're limited with our ability to raise more beef. Which, if we can, I mean, if if a producer's limited on the amount of cattle they have by the amount of land they're going to be able to use. Um, exactly. And and I mean, yeah, there's there's always going to be the limitation of you know how many hours in a day too. But I think it's the amount of land that we have, and and we're not we're not using the land like we should be there's There's an awful lot of public land that has far too much restrictions on it, and some guys are just throwing their hands in the air and saying, "I don't want to do this anymore and that hurts that that bugs me. So I think the natural resources are there, they are abundant. I know we've gone through some hard times in the central plains recently. I know there's the drought. I know that we have challenges there. I also believe that if we just were able given the license to farm and ranch like we should then i think that would be the biggest change and that i don't know if you
0: were expecting that answer but that's that's what i've been observing lately the one thing i like about meat scientists is i never know what to expect wit dry humor you all i don't again <laughs> i said this to diana clark when she was on here i don't know what grad level class it is when you enter meet science masters and PhD programs, but each one of you comes out of it with that. You never know what you're going to get out get, of it. We all guys. got to screw many, loose, too many, I think. Yeah, too many days in the cooler. You, no, yeah. I, I I, can't disagree.
1: Yeah,
0: yeah. So so that's one.
1: Okay. Do I do I still have two other wishes? Yeah, that you can two more. Me? Okay. <laughs> do they get crazier? No, I don't think so. I think they'll- be, Okay, maybe I'll give, they'll, you, they'll I'll give just, you both of them. So that's the big, that's the big- ask, you know, between that and world peace, I think we'll be, we'll be, we'll be set a piece of cake, Be a piece of cake. Right. So, um, you know, Dr. Phil for president. (laughs) Oh man. No, I'm too lazy. I like my job. (laughs) Uh, The others would probably be, you know, we need to, we need to continue to help our producers see where their end product is going. Um, you know, uh, right now I got, I got two things I want to tell you. So there's, Certified Angus Beef is one. I'm pretty sure Creekstone Farms, um, there's uh, National Cattlemen's Beef Association, and many of the other state beef councils are regularly taking folks out to ranches and helping them see where their food comes from. It's not enough. It's never going to be enough. There's never going to be enough buses to, to bring all of the consumers out there. But man, eyes open when, when they see just how much care goes into raising livestock just how much work um i used to do that all the time and i and i still try to as much as i can but you know um bring chefs out to ranches because they're influencers in their in their communities and uh so often they leave and say we're not paying enough for meat you know we we put an awful lot of work there's an awful lot of work that goes into raising beef especially It comes down to we need to continue to open that door and bring people into our world. I've been, for a very long time, one of the biggest critics of animal agriculture because we have failed to tell our story. I think we're getting much better at it now. But we have a lot of work to do because we failed to tell our story, and now somebody else has gone and told it, and they've told it wrong, and now we're having to backpedal a little little bit. So shameless pluggery, two things to that one point is we, we, we need to make that connection more. And so one of the things that I I really try to promote is just getting more people out to the farms and ranches and trying to make that connection. I know that takes time, guys. I really do. That takes time out of your day that you're already very, very busy doing. And I also know that some of us take up farming and ranching so that we can stay away from people. (laughs) But but if it's not for people, again, (laughs) all we have is a petting zoo. And so we have to make sure that we are still selling that final product. And so we need to continue to communicate. Um, I recently, here here again, you can edit this out if you want, but I recently wrote a book. It's called It's Not a Cow. For folks out there who are in our world, um, you know, everybody calls anything that moves and has four legs a cow. And and we all know that that's not true. And so that's the that was the preface of it. But uh, ultimately, it's we need to get the message out. And I finally decided, well, this is one way I want to get the message out is just um, a lot of folks in agriculture are probably reading it. But in the end of that book, I say, please pass this on to somebody who needs it. We need to be telling that story to our, to our consuming public, and we need to be getting that, that message out in a, in a very uh, more elevator speech kind of version. And it's so hard to do with animal agriculture because it's so complicated. It's, you can't just say it in 30 seconds. And, and that's why I felt like I had to write a book to do that. But it's not long, and it's not a coloring book, but it's not long at the same time. But that would be my second wish is we need to continue to help make that connection to the consumer. And we need to get more people out to the farms and ranches. We need to show them the good that we're doing, the good that cattle and livestock bring to the world beyond just the nutrition, but also how it enhances the natural natural resources that we have. And especially way out here in the West, I mean, the ability to limit wildland, fire fuel, um, you sure. know, cattle are amazing grazers. They can go places that four wheeled and even tracked vehicles can't go. And they're making meat in the process, which is so cool. They're making a food out of out of land that we can't use. And so, um, I guess that kind of ties into my, my, my first one. But that'd be my second one is we need to we need to continue to make that connection back to the consumer. Um, and then I don't know, finally it's it's um we need to continue to remind our producers what they're doing. They're, they're making food. We need to be proud of that, and we need to be selling that. And, um, you know, this, I, I, I was thinking of something earlier on in our conversation, um, and so maybe this is a good time to say it, but a lot of farmers and ranchers are very humble people, and that's great, and it's a good virtue to be humble, but you also need to promote yourself. You need to you need to talk about the good that you're doing, because ultimately it's going to be good for the industry. We can't just sit quietly and uh, and do our thing because we're going to go into non-existence and we can't do that. That's not right. It's not right for the world. um, It's not right for our industry. So we have to tell our story. Um, I know some of us are are starting to age out of the uh, 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 maybe more the, the the social media technological areas. I I'm not good at it. I had to, I had to write down what I was thinking. Um, I I do podcasts. I go and give presentations. I'm not good at the social media thing, but there are younger generations who are good at that. Let them take pictures of the ranch. Let them tell about the story. People want to know where their food comes from. And that's why they're getting this misinformation sometimes is because they just start looking and somebody else who's really good at marketing and doesn't like what we do has already told the story. We have to tell our story because we have a great story to tell. And, and, and if we do that, then we're going to continue to have demand. I believe all those, my three wishes are relatively tied together. Ultimately, my goal in life is to drive demand for animal agriculture. I want people to eat meat. I don't, really care where, which animal it's coming from. I do care where it's coming from. I'm not a big fan of the cell-based stuff, but uh, um, I want our producers, I want our farmers and ranchers to be successful. I want them to have a comfortable life. I don't want them to feel like they're slaves to their land or the government. I want them to be feeling like they're serving their communities by raising livestock and by making food how virtuous can that possibly i think it was i think it was uh i think it was uh, george washington said the, the the most noble and virtuous pursuit is agriculture um yep. you're you're using what the lord gave us to serve humanity wow wow what a job description huh
0: so exactly let's remind
1: ourselves of that
0: well i can't believe that i invited a meat scientist with whom i had never met spoken hardly ever even read about, and yet you basically did my job as a podcaster for me because (laughs) I usually have to tie something up here at the end of it, and there is nothing more to say. I mean, that is as spot on as I've heard anybody put together as to who we are, some of the good and bad of who we are as beef producers, but also why we do it. And why we need to not just practice care and respect with these animals, but tell folks just how much care and respect we have for them, and for our live livelihood, and for our businesses, and our family legacy. And yeah, I just uh, I should have known that Dr. Phil would come on here and be philosophical about humanity and and why it is we do what we do. Uh, I I didn't see it coming, but I'm glad that glad that you're here to share it. I appreciate it. Will you go out and have that great ribeye and two ribeyes with the wife tonight? And uh, we'll all do the same across the nation and always. And uh, I do want before we go, what's your podcast name so people yeah. can go and listen?
1: Yeah, it's called it's called Meats Pad. Um, it's kind of a funny name, but it was originally an idea of of my my co host and uh, the founder of Meats Pad, Dr. Francisco Nahar. And, uh, I think I was, I was maybe interview number two or three, uh, on there. And, uh, and when we, when we stopped recording, he and I just kept talking and talking about ideas and, and how we need to get the message of meat out to even our meat processors. And that's yeah. kind of what it's, what it's for. And so, you know, if you want to learn more about meat science and, and even just the business side of what it is that we do on the processing side, um, that's a good, uh, podcast to go to it's available at all the usuals. And, um. Uh yeah, so MeatsPad and uh and we have a, a, a an email if you have any questions about meat science at info at meatspad.com and yeah, reach out and come hang out with us.
0: Awesome. I'll put that on there. And then where can we or where should we get it's not a cow? Yeah. Oh yeah, book. great. Yeah, so it's not a cow. Um
1: uh it's uh it's available on Amazon, um Barnes and Noble, um, uh dot com. Um, we were actually a bestseller for about a week there on on that list, which was kind of cool. That is um, awesome. Yeah, and uh, and then uh, ThriftBooks.com. I've also seen it there. Um, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of thrifts books. If you're not familiar with that that particular website, if you like reading and you don't like spending a lot of money, that's a good one to go to. So I'd say yeah. that
0: you are in good company talking <laughs> to folks on this podcast. If you want to if you want to read, educate yourself, and not have to spend a lot of money or time that's to right. do it, so that's, that's probably right. why they're listening to this thing. Is they bounce along in the pickup or tractor or horse or whatever the case may be so yeah, yeah well i uh i would probably be that guy that kept you on here visiting for another hour or two uh <laughs> but i know you've got things to do as as do i and the listeners so i'm gonna end it there but just thank you so much for everything you do on a daily basis for beef producers across the nation not just in the pacific northwest and thanks for being on here thank you
1: Thank you. it's a pleasure
0: Thanks as always for joining us for this episode of Practically Ranching brought to you by Dale Banks Angus. If you feel inclined, leave us a comment. Tell us how we can do even better. Like us, share us, subscribe. We're continuing to see great growth of the podcast. We love hearing from our listeners and getting those good ideas for guests like Dr. Phil. So if you've got an idea in that regard as well, send them our way. We can't promise to get everybody on but I always like that input from listeners so stay warm take care of yourselves this winter and spring during calving and sale season and we look forward to talking again in two weeks